Good morning, everybody. All the way from Brush Prairie. Yeah, I'm here. Good to see you. Happy Fourth of July-ish, um, approximately. Um, uh, you know it's Fourth of July because uh, it looks like three quarters of the church is uh, camping or something. So if you're streaming online, we are really uh, glad that you're maybe with us. We hope you're with us. I'm not sure. You'll probably be with us at some point this week. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a joy to also have so many visitors here uh, who, are, who are joining us for uh, the baptism and for family reunions and all this good stuff. So it's, uh, it's just fun to be here together. Uh, if, because so many of you are new or, or not, haven't been with us over the last few months, we are in the middle of a series right now walking through the Sermon on the Mount, which is Jesus' most famous sermon found in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And uh, We've just been walking through it, examining what is the good life that Jesus designed for all of us to live. What is life in what he calls the kingdom of God meant to look like? And, and he spells it out throughout Matthew 5 through 7, showing us in, in different moments and through, through different teachings um, how the world would say that you should live this way and the, and the traditional church Religious law would say that you should live this way, but I tell you that God has an even higher ethic for each of us, and he tells us how the world is meant to live, or how we are meant to live in this world. So we are walking through the Sermon on the Mount, and right now we are in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in, uh, sorry, in verse 25. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to there, and we're going to get started. Now, when you become a parent... Uh, you become suddenly aware of a long list of things in the world that you need to suddenly worry about. Things that you never really thought were dangerous or problematic suddenly become life or death kind of objects in your home. A quarter is no longer a quarter. It is a choking hazard. <laughs> And it's a list that keeps growing every day. You have the obvious ones like choking hazards, like forks being stuck in light sockets and things like that. And those have been around for a while. But beyond that, you have to worry about hundreds of other things like suddenly which foods are okay. Is dye a problem in food, you know, or is gummies all right for my kids? When can I introduce honey to children without poisoning them? Um, you know, is it okay for me to vaccinate my kids? Which vaccines are okay and which are not okay? Will screens help teach my children the ABCs or will they destroy them forever and give them ADD? What is the right way to educate my kids? Free range parenting versus helicopter parenting. And then of course, there's all the culture war stuff around gender and orientation and active shooter drills. And the list goes on forever and ever of things as a parent that will produce unending anxiety. And that's just parenting. The rest of our lives are riddled with all kinds of other worries. Piled on top of the day-to-day -day things, we have dealt with tons of really challenging and unprecedented macro concerns. We are living in a time of high anxiety, people worrying about how to exist in the middle of a global pandemic. And not just worrying about whether or not we will get sick, but whether or not we will be the cause of somebody else getting sick. We're facing the, uh, a European land war that threatens the stability of the global system right now. We are facing down yet another recession uh, in my adult life, struggling to make ends meet in the face of inflation. 
We feel increasingly unsafe in a world that is full of weapons and random mass shootings. Those are the things that are in the news. And then on top of it, a couple of years ago, I don't know if you guys saw this article about the fact that we have like some crazy earthquake looming in the Northwest that has a one in three chance of hitting in the next 50 years. Does anybody else think about that weekly? Because I do. <laughs> I do. We are living in a time of extreme anxiety. Prior to the pandemic, in the United States, about one in five adults was diagnosed with some kind of anxiety disorder. And since 2019, estimates say that, uh, that anxiety and depression have risen by more than 25%. Even more troubling is that between 32 and 38% of adolescents ages 13 to 18 have a diagnosable anxiety disorder. A third of teenagers, according to statistics from, from a couple of years ago, say that teenagers have anxiety at that level. There is a low-grade fear that is simmering in most people all of the time. And so living in this world of heightened anxiety, it just becomes too much. And in order to keep from going totally crazy, we tend to bounce back and forth between an obsession with control and then just looking for ways to cope and check out, resigning ourselves to the way the world is, you know, making a gin and tonic in the summertime or something just to ease it off a little bit. The world's crazy. Life is impossible. I'm stressed out. Let's just binge watch Stranger Things. And then you start to wonder if we are, in fact, living in the upside down. Like, I can, even as I am preaching this preamble, where this is the part of the sermon where I'm supposed to kind of give the setup and then eventually I bring the solution, I'm like, my blood pressure is going up as I am talking to you right now. And so although the specifics of the anxiety that we are living with in our time um, are, are new, the problem of worry is ancient. It is as old as humanity. The Bible is full of people who call out to God in the midst of their stress and their anxiety and the difficulties of life. In the first century, when Jesus was ministering and, and moving about uh, the, 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 the region around uh, Jerusalem and Galilee, uh, Jesus was ministering to people who had tons to worry about. The people of Israel were occupied by the oppressive rule of Rome, suffering underneath their harsh exploitation, paying upwards of 80% of their finances in taxes. They worried about food and clothing. They worried about violence by the state. And Jesus comes onto the scene with a message about a new way of living. He came with a message of hope to people who were trapped in a world that was hopeless. He shared good news that God's kingdom had arrived and was among them. And that this kingdom is utterly different than the power structures of the world. It's a kingdom where the poor are lifted up as inheritors of God's blessing. It's a kingdom where grace and sacrificial love are more powerful than force and strength. It's a kingdom where secret mercy is rewarded by our Father who is in heaven. Jesus brings this good news to the world and it lifts the hearts of all those who are burdened by stresses, who are suffering under injustice. Everyone who heard the words of Jesus, their hearts were lightened by the hope of this kingdom. And the Sermon on the Mount that we have been studying the last couple of months is Jesus' manifesto of what life in this kingdom is meant to look like. And so this morning, we are looking at Jesus' words about anxiety. How do Jesus' followers navigate a world that is riddled with worry? 
How is a Christian supposed to think about anxiety? I'm so glad that you asked. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. And, and as you're praying, or as you're turning there, I would like to pray for us, uh, just because I can sense that a lot of us are coming into the room today carrying a lot of the burdens of life with us. So let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. God, we just recognize that you are here among us. You're in the room. You are with each person who is streaming online. And we are so thankful, God, that there is nothing that we carry that is too heavy or difficult for you. We thank you that the words of Jesus, the declaration of Jesus, is that we can bring our burdens to him and we can lay them at his feet because the yoke that he offers us, the burden that he offers us, is easy and light. And so we just come this morning, God, wanting to exchange all of the troubles again. We love you, Lord. Amen. Matthew 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So there you go. Jesus just said it, right? We figured it out. He said, don't worry. Done. We can just close our Bibles and go have lunch, right? We are commanded by Jesus in this text to not let worry rule our lives. And in one, in one um, respect, this command is really freeing because it shows us that anxiety and stress and worry are not part of God's will for our lives. He doesn't want us to live with this burden. It means that anxiety is somehow contrary to God's design for our lives. And so the life that God designs for us or intends for us is one of peace. So then why is it so hard for us to find peace? I think the issue behind worry is an issue of unbelief. The root of this problem comes back to a faulty view of who God is and what his intentions are for my life. It's about trusting that he really wants what is best for us. The, the, the Bible actually teaches us that God is the creator and the sustainer. That's who he is. But there's a question of whether we will believe that he is, in fact, the one who sustains everything. As Christians, we are just as susceptible to anxiety as everyone else. We say we believe in God, that we trust God, that we're sustained by God, and yet our actions... Uh, in, our, in our actions, we, try, we strive to do everything on our own for ourselves, that we actually put our trust in our own abilities to provide for ourselves, to comfort ourselves, to sustain ourselves. And so anxiety is not the natural outflow of circumstances. It actually goes all the way back to the heart. And Jesus again and again says that the way into this kingdom life that God offers us is not to start with behavior, but all the way back at a heart level. And anxiety is a barometer of one's worship. It reveals what we worship and it reveals what we believe about God. The things that we worry about tend to be the things that we worship. We worry about whatever is central in our lives. 
And so maybe it's money and security, wondering if you're going to be able to get by, if that looming debt is going to eventually crush you, uh, if we're going to be able to make it through a recession or through this time of inflation. Maybe it's the future, not being sure what's going to come on the other side of whatever it is that you're facing. Maybe it's, it's your kids. Uh, maybe you worry about their future, or maybe you worry about whether or not you can handle this any longer. Um, parenting any longer. Maybe it's the approval of others or being seen as successful. Maybe it's your physical health and wondering if you're going to be healthy and okay. And maybe I just gave you my whole list of the things that I worry about. And Jesus answers this by saying, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Life is about so much more than these things that occupy so much space in our minds. And so rather than worrying about all of the stresses of life, Jesus calls us to orient ourselves towards seeing the goodness and the blessing of God that surround us all of the time. Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet our heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yes, I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So as he's teaching us to let go of the worry and the anxiety of our lives, he points us back to nature. He says, from nature, we are going to learn the lessons of how God cares for his creation. So just look around. I mean, literally, like, we should just go outside right now and just look around. It is the most beautiful time of the year in one of the most beautiful places in the world. Tragically, so many of us get stuck in our routines and we forget to actually look up and notice the beauty that is all around us. We miss the flowers and the birds. We miss the mountains that we just take for granted. We miss the enormity and power of the rivers that surround us. We miss uh, the, 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 the gorge. It's amazing. It's beautiful right here where we live. We forget to look up and notice the beauty. And Jesus is drawing, us back, drawing our attention back to see the world that is alive with God's presence. So look at the birds. Birds live day to day. They take what they find, and they find that they have enough. They don't stress about filling up their barns with food. They're not worried about how their 401k is uh, is, is, is faring in these times. They don't fret about storing away enough for tomorrow. They live in the moment and they find God's hand of provision is right there. And if God cares for all of these birds and sustains their lives with enough, how much more does he care about you and me? How much more will he provide for his people? And then he goes on and says, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to, to this span of life? Which we know to be true. That the more anxious we are, the shorter our lifespan is. And then what about your clothes? Why are you so worried about what you'll wear? 
Like, take a look at the flowers around you. They don't fret over what to wear. They don't make clothes and read fashion blogs, but God clothes them in beauty uh, all the same. Now, during this time of year, uh, I always try to make a point of getting at least one good hike in, because, man, this is like one of the best times of the year to hike in the Pacific Northwest. And one of my favorite spots to go hiking is Mount Silver Star. How many of you guys have climbed Silver Star? It's amazing. It's beautiful. And my favorite is to go up Silver Star with Steve Fish. Uh, he and I try to go uh, each spring. He's not here. He left um, because he doesn't need to hear me preach, I guess. It's okay, I don't mind. Um, but I go up with Steve, and we, and we walk through this. The, the, up at the top of the mountain, there's just like field after field of all of these incredible wildflowers. And each time that Steve and I go up and, and hike this place, we just sound like total dorks because we're wandering around like gobsmacked, like, wow, it's so beautiful. Look at all the colors. It's amazing. No, but look at those colors. Oh, I know. It's so, we sound so, like such dorks. And... And, and this is what the image that Jesus is pointing us back to. The beauty of God's creation is meant to draw uh, out of us a sense of worship, a sense of awe and wonder at the, at the power of God and his care for even the most out-of-the-way corners of the world. He's, he, up in the mountains where nobody lives, God has arrayed such beauty and splendor because that is what God is like. I love how Jesus says it, but if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This is how God adorns the grass, which is going to be gone tomorrow. How much more will he care for your needs? Stop fretting so much about the clothes that you wear. God's care for his creation is a picture of how God will care for you which is a beautiful statement. It is like, it is amazing to think, God is the creator and sustainer. What do I need to worry about? That's the kind of thing you want to put on a bath towel and hang it up in your bathroom. It's amazing. And yet, yet, if you probe even a little beyond the surface, very hard questions come up. Because then you have to ask the question, what do we do about suffering? The picture that Jesus paints is of a God who would never let trouble fall on a sparrow. But the reality of the natural world is that the world is brutal. What about the sparrow that starves? What about the flower that is burned up in a grass fire? And that is what we call the problem of pain, the problem of suffering. And for many, the problem of suffering is the very thing that ends up pushing them away from belief in God. Celebrity atheist and scholar Richard Dawkins writes it like this. He says, the total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. During the minute that it takes me to compose this sentence, thousands of animals are being eaten alive. Many others are running for their lives, whimpering with fear. Others are slowly being devoured from within by rasping parasites. Thousands of all kinds are dying of starvation, thirst, and disease. It must be so. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Nothing but pitiless 
indifference. Put that on a bath towel. (laughs) So Jesus is not naive about our suffering. Jesus would actually go on to experience the most horrific suffering imaginable. Jesus is not painting some rosy picture of life that is devoid of conflict. Jesus has much to say about suffering. In fact, he tells his followers that we should all expect it. In fact, he tells his followers that we should expect it even more than everyone else. And he calls his followers to spend themselves to relieve the suffering of other people, even at the the cost of their own suffering. We have to remember the context of Jesus' words. Jesus was speaking here to his followers about life in the kingdom of God. These words, this teaching is about a radical lifestyle of trusting God for all of the ordinary details of life while being fully devoted to the mission of his kingdom. Verse 31, he says, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we wear, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The Gentiles, or some of your Bibles might say pagans instead, it was a reference to the Romans uh, who were living in a city that was just north of Nazareth, a city called Sephorus. And and these, these Roman sort of expatriates who were called, like, were forced to live in the the region of Israel, Galilee, Nazareth, Um, sort of the compensation that they received was a fairly opulent lifestyle, where wine and women and song and theater and opulence were the way of life for them. So they were a living example of what a disciple was not meant to be like. Don't be like those pagans up north in the city spending everything they have on luxuries. Don't clamor for the comforts that everybody else is aspiring to. We would probably actually be more tempted to live like those people to the south of us, you know, those wasteful millennials who, go, who are at brunch right now while we're at church worshiping the Lord. Nobody? Sorry. Where are my millennials at? Yeah, there we go. And this is at the heart of so much of our anxiety, the desire for what other people have, worry over worldly problems. It distracts us and it robs robs us of the life of God's kingdom that he's inviting us into. And so Jesus' words are not a blanket promise of provision and blessing and that everything is going to be okay. We all know that that's not how life works for us. Tragedy for every one of us is merely a phone call away. But Jesus' words remind us that we can worship or that, uh, remind us that we can worship worldly comforts, which will pass away, which will never satisfy us, or we can worship God and store up for ourselves treasures in him. And he finishes it with this statement. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And so Jesus' strategy for overcoming the worries of the world is to pursue God's kingdom and his righteousness. And these words, they refer to God's presence in his kingdom and God's will and his righteousness. Seeking the kingdom means pursuing God's presence right here and right now. It means that we become like conduits of God's power and grace in the world. We bring the presence of God with us wherever we go. Seeking the kingdom is about having a new set of spiritual eyes to see situations and circumstances not according to sort of the present reality, but according to what God wants to do in any given moment, what God's will is in the lives of those around us. 
We are endlessly hopeful because we are assured that God is at work saving the world, saving the people around us. And then we seek God's righteousness. It's about living out the will of God. It's recognizing God's will for justice and, and to flow in our community and across the world. It's about taking our hands out of our pockets and putting them on the shoulders of someone and praying a prayer of healing and blessing over other people. It's seeking to restore the broken places across our community. Things like foster care and homeless care and addiction and mental health crises. We are to give our whole lives to the pursuit of God's will being done in our community just as it is in heaven. And so this teaching from Jesus is not just all about gritting our teeth and ramp, ramping up some legalistic effort to do righteous things and then we'll be taken care of and it'll all be okay. No, it's about living in the presence of our king who offers his people the way to live the gospel-saturated life in the kingdom of God. Fundamentally, seeking first the kingdom of God is a matter of fixing our eyes on Jesus. Despite the insanity of the world around us, the way for us to let go of the burden of stress and anxiety and worry is to get our eyes off of all of the chaos and problems and to fix them on Jesus. In Matthew chapter 14, Jesus' closest friends were on a boat and it was the middle of the night, and they were crossing a lake. And Jesus wasn't with them because he stayed behind on a hill to pray, to commune with the Father. And then a storm hit, and all of the disciples were frightened. And it says, we read in Matthew 14 that around 4 o'clock in the morning, Jesus came out walking on the sea. And as you might expect, this freaked his friends out. And Peter, who could barely see Jesus through the storm, he calls out to him. And here's what we read in verse 28. It says, And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Isn't it interesting that Jesus uses the same exact phrase in Matthew chapter 6 when he's talking about those who let worry and anxiety and the same thing he said to Peter? Hey, you got your little faith. You have little faith. Why are you afraid? You see, Peter, he was experiencing the power of God. He was walking on the water with Jesus. He was doing something that none of us could imagine doing right up until he took his eyes off Jesus. And then the fear got him. And it's not that the waves suddenly rose up and blocked his view and it was unfortunate circumstances. The storm was there the whole time. It was really all about his perspective. It was really all about what he had his eyes on. Life in the kingdom of God is not a guarantee that we will never experience trouble. It's not a promise that you will always have peace and prosperity and safety and plenty. What we are promised is a life of blessing that comes from walking with Jesus. We need to live in the confidence that Jesus' kingdom is reaching from the present, or from the future into our present world and that God promises to bless us according to the kingdom. 
Romans 8, 31, one of my favorite passages, he says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The message of Jesus is that God the Father is reaching out to rescue us from all the things that threaten us, namely our greatest threats, death and hell. God is on a rescue mission of blessing. Nothing is beyond his hand to provide, and no one is beyond his hand to reach with love. The antidote to fear is a life that is focused on Jesus, his presence, and his righteousness. Life in the kingdom, it banishes all of our fears. And it's not because of some vague hope that the best is yet to come, that it's all gonna work out in the end. It's because we know the king. He loves us more than we can ever comprehend. Our confidence is rooted in his character. And I don't believe that all my circumstances will work out just because, but I know that in God, all things are going to work together for, uh, sorry, (laughs) terrible quote. I'm terrible at quoting, but I know that God is good and the promise is that for all those who love God, all things will work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God's presence in our lives gives us confidence that we can live without anxiety, without worry, without fear, and without stress. And such confidence, it propels us to do kingdom stuff, to live sort of out, to do the Jesus-y stuff, to go out and to do the same things that he did in the world. A kingdom life is not one that relaxes and believes that God will take care of everything. A kingdom life is not careless, but it is carefree. It is a life of freedom from the concerns that everyone else is worried about. It's unwavering faith that God will take care of my needs as I give myself radically to following him. That's what moves us to go out and to give generously, to love sacrificially, to pour ourselves out for others. It's why we can do acts of righteousness in secret because we know that even though nobody else knows about it, our Father delights it in and he will bless those who live according to the kingdom of God. So what do we do when anxiety comes rushing back in? How do we obey Jesus' command to not worry about our lives? I don't know about you, but for me, anxiety always hits at the exact same time at nearly every day, 3 a.m. Any, anybody else get hit with a 3 a.m. worry fest? where you play the same tape sort of on loop over and over again of all the things that you're worried about. And somehow, for some reason, uh, that, that story of that dorky thing you said in sixth grade somehow manages to pop back in there as well. <laughs> Makes no sense. And it's so frustrating, right, to have your worry hit you at 3 a.m. because there's nothing that you can do about it in that moment. I can't get up and, and send a whole bunch of emails and take care of all of those problems at 3 in the morning or people will think I'm a psychopath. And so why do all these things come at me at that time of day when I can do nothing about it? Uh, Probably because I'm vulnerable in that moment, because my guard is let down. And I like to come back to this passage in Philippians and pray this uh, whenever those moments of anxiety come come crowding in. Philippians chapter 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
What we see here is that when anxiety comes in, there are two weapons that God gives us to fight back against it. And those two weapons are rejoicing, which is worship, and prayer. The Apostle Paul, writing from prison, says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. And when the enemy comes at you like a flood, he's trying to pull your attention off of God. He's trying to get you to focus on the wind and the waves. He's trying to get you to sink like Peter did. But instead, we are called to worship, to rejoice, to preach to our own souls about the goodness, the mercy, the love, and the care of our Father, to reorient ourselves again back to who God is. And in every situation, in every anxiety that comes and crowds in in our lives, we are called to pray. We carry our stresses to God and we hand them over to him. In 1 Peter 5, we read, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. When we bring our anxiety and our cares to God, we are entrusting them to the one who is all-powerful, who is full of wisdom, and who loves us more than we can ever imagine. We are trusting in God more than ourselves. And this is where we find freedom. We are called to rejoice and pray, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's it. It's that simple. Amen?